Prayer is communication with God. You've probably heard that definition often if you spent any time in church, that prayer is communication with God. But even though that is 100% true, prayer is a communication with God, that's a perfectly apt definition for the word prayer, it can sometimes be an oversimplification, can't it, to call prayer communicating with God. Uh, it's 100% true, but as my daughter with her learner's permit would tell you, uh, you know, driving is not just getting your car from one place to another. True, true statement, driving is just getting your car from one place to another, but there's so much more that goes into that than just that. So prayer is communication with God, but there's so much more that goes into it. Now, at the same time, I don't want to overcomplicate prayer either. We can just as easily go down that road of overcomplicating prayer and move into an unhealthy territory in that direction when it comes to our prayer life. So let's, let's look at it this way today, and we'll move forward from there. We face two dangers whenever we talk about prayer, okay? The first danger is we can make prayer seem so difficult that only these super Christians can pray effectively while the rest of us just kind of muddle along, that we let them pray for us and we'll just kind of agree at the end and say amen. Sometimes the stories we read about or, or we share about these saints throughout history who've spent hours a day on their knees crying out to God can end up kind of discouraging us because we're busy and we're tired and the kids are wearing us out and our job is a hassle and life feels like a burden. So even if Luther prayed for three hours every morning, that was a long time ago and he's been dead for almost 500 years and Luther didn't have morning swim team practices to get his tattoo or eight o'clock you know, budget meetings every morning either, right? I mean, he didn't deal with the same things we deal with. You know what I mean? It's easy to get intimidated about prayer. We can easily go down that road where we get intimidated and it shuts down or it minimizes our prayer experience. And God never intended for prayer to be something that intimidates us. He intended for it to be something that encourages us, that empowers us, that turns our hearts more consistently toward him. That's what prayer is designed to do. There's never supposed to be an intimidation or feel like there's this hill we have to climb to get to some level of effectiveness in our prayer lives. Or we can go to the opposite extreme, and we can make prayer seem like texting a friend to meet you for dinner in a movie. You know, that, that has the advantage of maybe making you want to pray because it's just so simple. We just, oh, God, can you do this? Thanks, see ya. But you can end up with a lightweight view of prayer if we approach it that way. Instead of coming into God's presence to talk to your heavenly father, the creator of the universe, you feel like you're chatting with a friend who's checking his Instagram while you're talking to him. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's cool. Okay, yeah, thanks, Eli, okay. You know, God is not really distracted while he's talking to you. Um, I'm going to spend a few hours with my buddy Jesus before I head into the office. You know, that's, that's not how this works. You ever see that picture of like buddy Jesus, you know, where he's like doing this and it's got this big like heart on him and stuff. Uh, that's kind of how some people approach prayer. And I think somewhere in the middle of these two extremes is a biblical approach and a biblical mindset when it comes to prayer. Neither extreme is healthy as most extremes are not in our world. And I think the best perspective for us to have is to think of prayer as a gift from God that enables us to stay connected with the Lord of the universe. It's a gift from God. He has given us this ability, and it allows us, enables us to stay connected, not to our buddy, but to the 
all-powerful creator of the universe. And I think somewhere in that definition is a healthy mindset, a healthy perspective as to what prayer is. And since it is a gift from God, we have an option. When somebody gives you a gift, you can open that gift and be excited about it and never use it again. I've had plenty of those gifts over the years. You know, sometimes we take it back, you know, undercover. Oh, thank you. Where'd they buy this? Uh, and it goes back to the store. Sometimes we put it to good use. But here's the thing. Just like any gift, if we use the gift, we will grow deeper in our knowledge of and our relationship to God. If we don't, we won't. That alone should go a long way towards tipping the scales for us to get us to invest time in prayer more consistently. If we use the gift, we will grow closer to God. If we don't use that gift, we won't. But let's be honest this morning, it doesn't always work that way. Even though we know this, we know it will deepen our relationship with God, we don't walk, just like we talked about tithing and how God has put this truth out there in the pages of scripture. If you are faithful, if you will honor me, I will bless you. If you don't, I won't. And yet how many of us still struggle to obey in the area of our giving? The same is true in prayer. We struggle even though we know the truth is there. So let's talk a little bit more about what God's word shows us regarding prayer and how that might help us live more biblically in our prayer lives. And the first thing I want you to understand is that prayer is a gift, not a burden. Prayer is a gift, not a burden. God wants us to pray. He encourages us to pray, and he invites us to pray. So with that in mind, I want to look this morning at James 5, verses 16 to 18, and see what it teaches us about the power of prayer and where that power comes from. And I think you might be surprised about some of the facets to the power of prayer. In this passage from James, we see a pattern, we see a promise, and we see a proof, an example that God gives us. Example is probably a better word here, but I had a chance to use all Ps. And I was a youth pastor for 11 years, and so it just comes naturally to me to like, alliteration and acronyms are just part of my blood. So I, I saw it and I, I, I jumped for it. So let's take these one at a time, the pattern, the promise, and the proof. Uh, the first thing is that God gives us a pattern to follow. God gives us a pattern to follow here in James chapter 5. In James 5, 16, we see that it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Confess your sins to each other. Now, already some of you are just, you're on edge just because I said that. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. You don't hear a lot of sermons on this verse. Why? Because we don't know what to do with it. Okay? We tend to jump past this one because we don't know what to do with confess your sins to each other. It sounds way too confusing and awkward, doesn't it? Hey, I, I just need to confess this to you, okay? You're like, dude, hold on. I'm not sure I want to hear this. Uh, and don't we just confess to God now, right? I mean, people in the Catholic tradition confess to their priest, but we just go straight to the throne and bring our sin to him, don't we? I mean, let's take a closer look and see what this could mean for us. On one level, it's really not difficult to understand this verse. It's laid right out for us. James gives us a three-part pattern for us to follow with regard to effective prayer. First, we confess to one another. Then we pray for one another. Then we are healed. It's not complicated, really, at face value. Confess to each other, pray for one another, we're healed. It seems simple on the surface, but can we be honest at least this morning, admit that this first instruction here trips us up. This whole confession of sin is never easy. 
It takes some time for us to get to a place where we're confessing our sin to God readily, let alone to other followers of Jesus. For us to say, hey, let me just talk about my dirty laundry for a few minutes. It's not something that comes naturally to most of us. Even when we know we're supposed to do it, and that when we do it, it will benefit us, we still struggle to obey. Proverbs 28, 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. So this is not just James. This is the writer of Proverbs as well. Here gives us a similar principle that when you conceal your sins, you will not prosper. But if you confess and turn from them, you will receive mercy. That's the problem, though, with this verse in James, is we know we need to confess our sins. We know it is good for us. But even, you know, even so, we do whatever we can to wiggle out of that obligation scripturally to confess our sins to one another. And this is the only place, by the way, in the New Testament where we are told to confess our sins to one another. This is it. You can read from Matthew to Revelation and everything in between, and you will not find another mention of confess your sins one to another. And so I think it's really important when you only have one isolated command in Scripture that's not repeated. Anytime something is repeated, it's easy. Okay, it tells us multiple times, I need to do this. When it's one time, you need to look at why this command is given to understand it. And so I want to look at why James brings it up here. And we have to look at the context before these verses. So in verses 13 to 15 leading into this, which teaches us how to pray for the sick. You know, call for the elders of the church. They'll lay hands on you. And so they go through this whole thing about how to pray for the sick. And so the whole passage here in James uh, is emphasizing the community aspect of the Christian life. How we live out our faith together as a church. James is writing here to new Christians, to the new church. The church hadn't even been on the scene that long. And James is writing this to them to give instruction about, hey, how do we do this church life thing together following Jesus in community? And, and what we need to understand is we're not supposed to do this alone. God never intended for us to do this alone. You, you've heard me say this before, but Christianity is a personal decision that is lived out in community. It's walked out in community. People say, well, my faith is a private matter. No, your decision to follow Jesus was a private decision, but now it is lived out in community. There's no place for somebody to live out their faith in isolation. That's why the Bible is very clear. It says, do not miss out on gathering together. You are intended to live in community. Your faith is not private. Your faith very much needs to be public, both inside and outside the church. We live our faith out loud outside the church to show others what God's love looks like. That's called evangelism. You are a witness. You are an example. When you live your faith out loud outside the walls of the church, we are letting people know what God's love looks like. And we live our faith out loud inside the church to encourage to correct, and to draw strength from one another. When we're living the kind of life we're supposed to live, we encourage and strengthen and correct those around us. So what happens to you affects me, and what happens to me affects you. We're connected as the body of Christ. We need each other more than we know, and we never really need each other more than when we are facing struggles in life like sickness, which is why James brings this up here. And so at the, con you know, 
the confusion in the previous section talking about how to pray for the sick, you know, James 5.15 includes the phrase, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. At the end of that section teaching us how to pray, James says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And it shows us the close relationship between the physical and the spiritual. The physical and the spiritual. And sometimes our bodies get sick because our souls are sick with unconfessed sin. Now, I'm not saying every time you get sick, it's because you have unconfessed sin in your life. But you see this in the New Testament when they were talking about a blind man and they were wondering, well, whose sin was it, you know, that caused him to be blind? Was it his father's sin? Was it his mother's sin? Was it his own sin? You know, we, they struggled with this, trying to identify whose sin is this. And Jesus, you know, basically said, who cares whose sin it is? Your sin's forgiven and you're healed. But we, we sometimes, there is a correlation, there is a connection between the physical and the spiritual. And we need to recognize that. I think sometimes because we can't touch that, we can't feel that, we can't wrap our minds around it, for those of us who are very logical, we push back against that somewhat because we, we can't connect those dots real easily and real uh, straightforward. And so we just kind of say, well, obviously my spiritual life is over here, my physical life is over here, but the Bible doesn't teach anything about a spiritual life. They said everything was spiritual. No matter what you're doing, whether you're working, whether you're worshiping, whether you're playing, whether you're doing life as family, no matter what you're doing, it's all spiritual and it all honors God. So there's no disconnect between our physical and our spiritual in scripture. We've kind of drawn that distinction in our society today where we have our spiritual, our church life, we have our business life, we have our family life, we have our recreational life, and never the four shall meet. When as reality, God says, I want it all. It's all mine. And so we have this intertwining of the physical and the spiritual. We cannot sometimes get better physically until we get better spiritually. So why does all this matter? Why is confession such an important part of this process? Sin isolates and drives us apart. Sin isolates us. It drives us apart from the body of Christ. Confession brings us together. Sin destroys unity. Confession repairs the breach that was created by sin. Sin makes us sick. Confession leads to healing. James just laid that out for us. So with all of that in mind, why are we so hesitant to confess our sins? I can think of a lot of reasons, and I'm sure you can too. It feels intrusive. Um, you know, our privacy is being violated. It's humbling. We are embarrassed. We are afraid. And our pride keeps us from admitting the truth. And I think there's a big question that comes to mind for me anyway, as I read this and as I prepared this message, a big question went through my mind when I read that we are supposed to confess our sins to each other. And that is, is James talking about private confession or public confession? You know, because you can read that either way. Is James talking about me going to, you know, my buddy over here and saying, hey, Glenn, uh, I have something I need to confess to you? Or is James talking about me standing up on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, church, got some stuff I need to get off my chest? What is James talking about here? And uh, even though, you know, we have both of these in, found in this verse, I would say the answer is yes, depending on the circumstances. Most of the time, our confession will be to another person that we've wronged. That if I wrong Pastor Ken, I'm going to go to him and I'm going to make that right. Say, Pastor Ken, I have, I have done this and I need to ask your forgiveness. I need to confess this to you. Would you please forgive me? I've already dealt with God and asked him to forgive me, but now I need to come to you. 
And Ken has a choice in that moment. He could say, forget you, pastor. No way. Uh, or, you know, he can live biblically, and hopefully he can forgive me and we can move on. We can pray together and it draw us closer. Um, but sometimes, you know, I would say occasionally, infrequently, the something may come up where it needs to be more public if the sin was of a public nature. But here's one thing that I know beyond any doubt that James is not talking about here, and you need to hear this before I say anything else, and that is we are not called to confess someone else's sin. <laughs> we are not called to confess someone else's sins. James is not telling us to do that. This just isn't how we're supposed to deal with sin in other people's lives. Confessing someone else's sin has a name. It's called gossip, okay? You don't confess someone else's sin. Not only is it wrong, not only is it sin, but it's a waste of time. You can't force someone else to confess. We aren't called to coerce people into confession. Confession has to come from a, a broken heart, from a contrite heart that says, I have wronged someone and I have wronged God in the process and I need to make this right. Unless somebody gets to that point, it's all an act. And so you can't force someone to do this. James wants us to think about instead the person in the mirror instead of the person next to us. If we're married, don't keep a record of the sins of your husband or wife. Okay? What good does that do? Keep track of your own problems and then be quick to confess them to the one that you love. Suppose someone says, yes, I sinned, but he sinned against me too. <laughs> well, that's probably true. I mean, it's a rare case when the fault is 100% with one person. There's usually two players involved. But what do you do if the other person refuses to confess their sin to you? The answer is not hard to find. You forgive them. How many times should I forgive someone that sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, infinity times. <laughs> there is no end to how much grace, to how much forgiveness you should extend to somebody who wrongs you. Um, take care of your side of the street. God can take care of the other side. I mean, we tell this to our kids all the time, right? I mean, this is something we focus on with those of you who are parents. You worry about you. I can't tell you how many times I've said this to my children. You worry about you. Don't worry about what they're doing or what they're getting away with or what they haven't done that they're supposed to do. I will deal with them. You worry about you. You be the best you that you can be, okay? I'll deal with them. And we need to have the same mindset when it comes to our relationship with God and with one another. I'm going to deal with me and the sin in my own life and let God deal with what's going on in someone else's life. Now, where that takes a little bit of a different approach is if you see somebody that you're close to and you, they're a follower of Jesus and you see a problem area in their life, there's nothing, and it's, here's what I would say, and it's not against you, okay? Uh, but you see something where they're going off track. It's biblical for you to go to them and say, hey, I see this going on and I just wanted to say I noticed this and I wanted to know, is there some way I can help you because I think that you're off the path of what God may have for you right now, okay? That's coming to them in love and help. But going to somebody and say, hey, you wronged me. You need to make it right. That's a whole different ballgame, okay? So you can't force somebody to confess their sin. But if there's a problem area in their life and it doesn't directly affect you, it's not about you, I would say go to them and ask them because that is biblical. Uh, so what happens when this is ignored? When we don't confess our sin to one another, we live in guilt, we live in isolation, 
Joy disappears, anger increases, friendships and trust erodes, all sorts of negative stuff happens. We confess together so that we can pray together. Okay? Because confession clears the way for prayer to happen. Confession clears the way for prayer to happen. Otherwise, there are too many obstacles in the road. Confession clears away all those obstacles and allows prayer the way it's supposed to be to take place. James presents the church as a community of believers where we are close enough to be honest and open enough to be real. And when that happens, true healing can take place. But the devil's going to fight you every step of the way. It's not just temptation to sin that the enemy uses against us. Now, he will bring you temptation to sin, but it's the shame and guilt of what we've done on the other side that he will also leverage. You've already been tempted. You've already given in. And now he will just heap onto that. He will pile on. And this recurring thought, what if others knew what you've been doing? So we live in the shadow of fear Worried someone will find out the truth about us, desperately hoping for a way out, but unwilling to step into that possibility. And what does the Bible say kicks fear to the curb in 1 John chapter 4? Such love has no fear because perfect love expels, casts out all fear. When we have a community of believers that is founded on the love of Jesus and we live out biblical love toward one another, fear has no place. Because we're not here to judge one another. We're, not, we're here to help one another. Don't, we don't try to embarrass. We try to encourage. We want everyone around us to be the best them they can be. And that's what biblical love does for a community of faith. We will not get better until we decide to do what it, whatever it takes to be pure before the Lord. You can't have clean hands until you decide to wash off the dirt. And God says that he who has clean hands can come. And the devil hates it when Christians confess their sins because secrets make you sick. You hoard this stuff long enough, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work through your soul. It's going to make you sick. The devil wants us weak and sick in our faith. The devil, because then you become easy pickings. And the cure to the secrets that pile up and make us sick is found in verse 16. Confession, prayer, healing. James lays it out. When we sin, everything within us screams out, cover it up. Turn off the lights, bury the evidence, destroy the tapes, make up an alibi, leave the scene of the crime, run, run, run. And we'll lie and add more sin to the pile before we confess sin most of the time. Because that's our nature. John 4 tells the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And he caught her attention with the promise of living water that would quench the thirst deep within her soul. And when she asks for that living water, she's like, yeah, that sounds good. I want that. Jesus responds by saying, go call your husband and come back. In John chapter 4, we see this story. And on one level, it appears Jesus is being insensitive to her because she doesn't have a husband anymore. Why bring up anything about her past in this moment? Can't we just move forward? Is Jesus trying to embarrass her? The answer is no. But his instruction to call her husband does make her very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go into detail, so she simply replies, I have no husband. Which was true, but it wasn't the whole story. She knew she was hiding the truth, but what she doesn't know is that Jesus knows it too. The woman has had five husbands, and the man she's living with currently is not her husband. And so Jesus is kind of poking the bear a little bit. He's like, hey, we got to deal with this. 
Does Jesus love this woman? Yes, he does. He knows the truth and wants to set her free from her past and offers her eternal life. And here's the miracle of God's grace. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without blinking. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without blinking. God does that for us. When I bring my sin to the Lord, I don't surprise him. I don't catch him off guard. He doesn't gasp in horror. He says, now we can move forward. And the same should be true of the church. If there's something buried in your life, whether past or current, and you need to make that right, you should feel the freedom to go to anybody in this church that you feel close to and say, hey, I need to make this right. Or I need you to hold me accountable. And because we love one another, we don't blink. We pray, we make things right, and we move forward. Real love means knowing the truth about someone else and reaching out to them anyway. And we can't miss the kicker to the story about the woman at the well. In John 4, 39, it says, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. So once the woman's secrets were out in the open... She was set free, and not only her, revival broke out in Samaria. There's a blessing that comes when we have nothing to hide anymore. If you are ready to be rid of your secrets, you can be set free. So after the pattern, we see the promise. I promise you that, that the other two points are not going to be as long as the first one. Uh, James 5.16 says, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Uh, you know, when I prepare my messages, I like to do a lot of original word study and go back to what did, the, what did the word mean to them and not just what does it mean to us as the biblical translators, you know, adapted it into modern language. And I love this one. The earnest prayer, the word that is translated earnest here comes from a Greek word that means energetic or boiling. So the boiling prayers of the righteous have great power with God. And boy, that word picture really works well for me for some reason. What's a boiling prayer? It has nothing to do with standing or sitting, kneeling or lying down. It has nothing to do with lifting your voice or speaking in a whisper. It has nothing to do with how loud or how long you pray or whether you open your eyes or you keep them closed. None of these go into whether your prayer is a boiling prayer or not. Here's the deal. When they take your child away for life-saving sur surgery, you'll discover what a boiling prayer is. When your spouse is in trouble, you'll pray boiling prayers to God. When anything becomes life or death to you, you'll pray an earnest, fervent, boiling prayer. And it won't matter how long or how short you pray, your soul will cry out to God. And that's the thing. When you see water boil, water doesn't boil from the top. It boils from the bottom. And it works its way up to the top, and you see the bubbles at the top of the water, but that's what's produced underneath, and that upswell comes up to the top, and that's where you see the effects. And a boiling prayer, you're going to hear somebody calling out to God, but it didn't start here. It doesn't start here. It starts here. It starts in the depth of who you are as the, the deepest part of your soul cries out to God. 
In a book I read some time back, the author was talking about a wreck in which his wife was badly hurt. And when he got to the crash scene, uh, she was still there and his wife was unconscious and, and her life was just hanging by a thread. And as he rode in the ambulance to the hospital with her, he stretched his arms out over his body and all he could do was just cry out, Oh God, oh Jesus, oh God, oh Jesus, oh God, oh Jesus. And he added this. He says it was... It felt like it was the first time in my life I had ever really prayed. Boiling prayers come up from the depths of your soul. And what we need to do is grow in our faith and in our prayers to the point where we don't need tragedy to pray a boiling prayer. I think that's where it happens most naturally. But where we can feel the depth of someone else's pain and not just our own. That when I get a text from Pastor Ken saying, hey, Pastor, I wanted to let you know uh, so-and-so is going through this and they're dealing with this in their life right now and I wanted to make you aware of it so you can pray that a boiling prayer would start down here because I feel what they're going through right now. Where we can have the same anguish over a coworker being lost in their sin as we would over one of our children lying in a hospital bed. Because James gives us a promise here that an earnest prayer, a soul-wrenching prayer, a boiling prayer has great power. And it will produce results. It moves the heart and the hand of God when we pray those kinds of prayers. It sets things in motion. Ask God to grow the level of passion in your prayer life. I think sometimes we get caught up in the language and the words that we use in our prayer life where God is much more concerned with the passion and the soul-wrenching earnestness that accompanies those words. Ask the Holy Spirit to work on that level of passion in your prayer life, to raise your prayers to the boiling point. And finally, James gives us proof that this works. He gives us an example from the Old Testament that his audience could all relate to. James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. So what is he saying here? James describes Elijah as as human as we are. Another translation says, with a nature just like ours. Another one says he was a man of like passions. He was like you, he was like me. Read the story and see for yourself. Elijah had his ups and downs. Okay, he was kind of the Old Testament version of Peter. He just went, went up, way up to the mountaintop, came crashing right down into the valley. He was all over the map. He was a pretty rough around the edges kind of guy. Not so polished, not so refined. You're not going to have Elijah over to watch the Super Bowl because you don't know when he's going to go off. Uh, he's that kind of guy. When he gets a message from God, he's going to take action. He's going for it. And you're not going to talk him out of it either. But he was far from perfect. He got a temper. He's prone to depression and discouragement. And James used him as an example for us to follow because despite all of his human frailty and all of his human weaknesses, he was a man of prayer who walked with God during an evil generation where way too many were going the wrong way. And even though he was an imperfect, rough-and-tumble kind of guy, he was also a man of prayer and had enormous faith in God. And that's why he's a hero in the pages of Scripture. It's easy to argue with James when you think of all Elijah did. He was a man of extremes, never taking the easier path down the middle. When Elijah was at his best, he called down fire from heaven and defeated 850 false prophets as he stood against them alone. 
When Elijah was at his worst, he ran across the desert and hid in a cave on Mount Horeb. He did nothing halfway. He was on the edge half of the time and over the edge the rest of the time. What about the story of Elijah laying himself across the body of a dead child and praying for God to bring him back to life? We see that in 1 Kings 17. And then God does it. Most of us can't imagine doing something like that. But then again, we're not Elijah. We're not like him. Or maybe we are. Elijah was not some superhuman man in a category far beyond the rest of us mere mortals. He experienced all the emotions of life like we do. Joy, sorrow, victory, defeat, frustration, disappointment, discouragement, anger, forgiveness, despair, relief, all of it. And we face two separate dangers when we study a life like Elijah's. One filled with tons of accomplishments, but sometimes we tend to give them sainthood. You know, treating them like they were exempt from the normal temptations of life. Well, that was Elijah. It's easy to chisel Elijah's head on some religious Mount Rushmore and say, there never was such a man before or since. Or we focus instead on a great person's failures and faults, exposing every sin, every foolish mistake, and in the end, they seem not very great at all. All the heroes of the Bible had their weaknesses, and Elijah was no exception to that. And that is one reason we kind of are drawn to him, I think, when we really know and understand his story. God used him in spite of his weaknesses. After his greatest victory, Elijah ran away. He ran away and hid in a cave and just completely just gave up. God had to go and find him and talk him back into his senses again. And then God used him again. And here's the thing. That's a great story because it's our story. It's our story. How many times have we failed and God had to call out to us again and we respond and then God uses us yet again. We've all run away before under pressure. We've given up, thrown in the towel, quit the race, caved in when the heat was on. No one is strong all the time. And what we need to realize is that we're all made from the same clay. Elijah's story is our story because Elijah's God is our God too. God pursued Elijah, and he comes after you, and he comes after me again and again and again. God doesn't quit. He doesn't accept our letter of resignation. He finds us, calls us, refines us, rebukes us, encourages us, and grows us more. And then he commissions us all over again. And James wants us to remember that this imperfect man of God prayed, and the rain stopped. It didn't fall in Israel for three and a half years. Then he prayed again and the heavens opened up and rain fell from heaven, ending the drought. If God would listen to Elijah's prayers, he will certainly listen to ours. If God listened to Elijah, he will absolutely listen and hear us when we cry out to him. The question we have to ask is not, am I good enough for God to answer my prayer? The most important question you need to ask is, is God good enough to answer my prayer? And I'll tell you right now with no hesitation, the answer is 100% yes. We serve a great God and a good God. He is great enough, has all the power that we would ever need at our disposal to see the, the miracles happen in our lives. And we serve a good God who loves us enough to make it happen. God will answer. James tells us to get our hearts right with God and with one another. That's step one. If we bury unconfessed sin, it's going to hinder our prayers and destroy both our vertical and our horizontal relationships. He tells us to pray together and to pray with passion. Pray big prayers and pray prayers that boil up from the depths of our souls. Let that become standard in your prayer life. 
that you cry out from the depth of who you are. In the end, prayer is not a burden. It's not a duty, but it's an incredible God-given privilege that we all share. We shouldn't pray because we have to, but because we want to. Pray with confidence, expecting that God will answer your prayers. Nothing is too great to ask, and nothing is too hard for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the privilege of prayer. That God, you have made this mechanism, this tool, this, uh, this gift for us to utilize to communicate with you at, at its most simplistic terms, but God, to cry out to you, to be molded and shaped by you, to hear from you. God, I pray that we would never take prayer for granted. But Lord, I ask that you would challenge each one of us this morning to maybe take a look at our prayer lives and say, what, where, what, what have I been doing in my prayer life? Am I more focused on what I say or the passion that comes behind the words that we say? And the first thing I want to ask God is that you would ignite a passion in each one of our souls for prayer. Holy Spirit, would you fill us and would you pray through us that you would give us the prayers that are going to move the heart of God, that it wouldn't just be some rote exercise where we're reciting some and just lots of words to make ourselves feel good that we spent more time in prayer, but God, let it be something that boils up from the core of our being and touches your heart. God, that's the kind of prayer that I want to pray. God, the second thing I want to ask for our church today is that, God, you would clear out the secrets. If anybody is here today and they're carrying a secret in their life and they're walking around with unconfessed sin either towards somebody or something, God, that they have just harbored for so long and they need to involve somebody just so they can have accountability and they can make things right with you, God, I pray that we would be a church that would not judge, we would be a church that would not condemn, but God, we would be a church that would love, we would be a church that would reach out and strengthen, that we would wrap our arms around those that are hurting, we would wrap our arms around those who have offended us. And God, we would forgive as you have forgiven. Lord, I pray that that would always be the case here at Trilogy. And God, finally, I pray that you would help us to look at an example of someone like Elijah and realize that even though we failed, you still want to use us. And God, I pray that we would have people in this room who would rise up as modern-day Elijahs, that our prayers are moving your hand, that our prayers are shaping a nation, that our prayers are changing destinies, that our prayers, God, are doing things that we could not even begin to comprehend in the natural. But because of who you are, because of your character, because of your goodness, because of your greatness, God, you you make all things possible and we can pray mountain moving prayers and see you at work. God, I pray that you would do all this, not so that we can feel better about our prayer lives, but God, so that you would be glorified in our lives, in our church, and through us to a world who needs to know you. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.